0: how dare you feel so low? You've just done this amazing thing. You've now got this amazing amount of money. Like, how dare you be sat here feeling sorry for yourself?
1: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Coots Beyond Success podcast, the show that lifts the veil on success and invites guests critically acclaimed in their field to sit with us and ponder the question what's next. I'm your host, Laura Jackson, and with me, poised to ask our guests their next step questions, is our lovely resident coos expert, Greg Kyle Langley. And basically, you're going to make me successful, right?
2: I'm going to try very hard.
1: Excellent. So let's get started. I am so excited that you guys are joining us and we really hope that you enjoy the show. Today's guest is one of the UK's most successful transformational tech leaders and the CEO of booming tech company, Fortero. Just this year, he was voted Powerlist's most influential black man in Britain, beating Stormzy, Idris Elba, and Marcus Rashford to the post. I mean, what an accolade. An ex-footballer, his journey began with aspirations of going professional, but fate had other plans for him. And after a rejection by Crystal Palace, he pivoted into the world of tech, where he's just signed a monumental one billion euro business deal. Wow. But what's next? Dean Forbes, everyone. Thank you what an introduction. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And it also feels like quite like a big question to ask you what's next. But I think before we ask you that, what were those feelings that you had when you signed a 1 billion euro business deal? Because not many people, if any, get to do that.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, thank you. I mean, I was quite fortunate, you know, a couple of times before we had, I was CEO of a few different companies, and we built those companies up. And Successfully exited them, so I had a bit of experience in what it was like to run a company and then take it to that important moment of exit. This was in another uh, ballpark, you know, a billion euros. It has another digit, you know, be, beyond what I'd done before, uh, and just working on that and everything that went with it, the team that had worked hard on it, and what it meant for my career and and my family. It was just such a such an emotional, uh, such an emotional time and, and great great moment.
1: How did you deal with those emotions as you say in in that in that moment? Did you were you feeling happy? Were you feeling shocked? Did you feel you'd made it? it?
0: It was it was strange because I had the experience of the rhythm of doing deals like that. So whenever you're doing a deal like that, there's a moment when the deal falls apart and when the party who's bidding for the company maybe, you know, decides that they want to do something different or steps back. So some of the emotions in the deal uh, I had experience to to manage, and I was kind of used to them, and that really helped me just kind of stay calm um, throughout. But then on the personal side, uh, this one exit was the equivalent to the combined value of the previous three. So I was really wired around getting one done that was going to be of the same value as the previous three, just as a as a personal um, you know milestone. So I was quite emotional and nervous about that, and. We had equity in the company, so we knew what it would mean for us uh, as a family. So my emotions were more personal than mm. than actually getting the getting the deal done.
1: Did you ever just kind of stop and think about what had happened, or do you just keep going? And is there another goal? Then another goal? Then another goal?
0: That that's a complex. It's <laughs> quite a complex, um, you know, question. After my first exit as CEO, uh, that was KDS in two thousand and sixteen. Uh, I really celebrated that exit. Like I really, you know, went a bit crazy for a like few how? months. I, I, I was out a lot. I was partying a lot. I was, if it moved, I was buying it. If it looked nice, <laughs> I wanted it. You know, I had uh, at one point I had like five or six cars. I had friends borrowing cars, and I forgot I owned them. Like it was, <laughs> it was really, um, it was really quite, uh, quite bad. So I had I had that experience, and that taught me. How much I needed the discipline, rigor, structure uh, of work. So I so I went back to work at, at Core HR. So that that taught that has taught me that in these moments of exits, you know, not to sit and contemplate for too long because I can like slip into that frame of mind. So that that's one aspect, and the other is, you know, I, I call it marathon runner syndrome, which is you work in these companies for a period of time, you're focused on building a high value business. At a moment, somebody. Sees that value and is interested in in acquiring it, and then you kind of have this amazing high of the exit, and then you have this you know tragic low because the thing you've been working towards for three years, five years, seven years has just happened. And I've had moments sitting there saying to myself, "So you know what? Why are we getting up again today? Like, what is the purpose?" So at that moment, I knew it was coming, so I'd already started to think about what what I was going to get up for, you know, the next morning after the deal done. So. Yeah, as soon as the whiskey hangover wore off, I was right back at, at my desk, ready to ready to go.
1: I guess there's a difference with, you know, in kind of taking a beat and thinking or just experiencing what you've just been through and then moving forward or, as you say, just going out and having a wild time and just getting your head into that. I mean, do you, do you think the kind of, those kind of beats, those pauses are important to kind of take stock of what's happened and then move forward.
0: De- definitely, and and as I've got old, older, you know, I, I manage them for myself better now. So I, I call them like podium moments. So I went back to work the next day, but I think two weeks later, we planned a party. Um, we called it our, um, our billion euro party. It was for friends, family, work colleagues that had been with us, my wife and I, uh, on the journey over the past kind of 15 years. Mm. And we went crazy. We had a great place in Mayfair. So we did it in one night and then we took uh, about 20 friends and family to to Kenya for a couple of weeks. Um, So we just had these two kind of set moments where we're going to stop, celebrate, enjoy what we've accomplished. Um, But yeah, not get too carried away with it because there's so much more that that we want to do.
1: And so how did you pivot into tech then? Like just, I know we're jumping to the very beginning. Like, How did all of this happen? Very, yeah,
0: it's it's a very, very simple story. Um, so I was playing football and when I was playing football, you know, you'd finish training at, at maybe two o'clock and you'd go into the canteen and there would be player staff and all manner of agents and financial advisors. And the access to borrowing for a 18 year old aspiring footballer was just incredible. Um, so I took all of it, right? Every loan, every credit card, every payday advance that that I could. I took all of it, and I had a convertible yellow Renault McGann and I was borrowing money on my next contract. That's how it was positioned. Right, that you're, you know, you're making five hundred pounds a week now, but on your next deal, you're going to make fifteen hundred pounds a week. So we can lend you money on the fifteen hundred pound a week income that you don't yet have, yeah. and of course, I'm eighteen, fresh off the estate. Um, this is music to my ears. So, so I took it all. And when the football career ended, I was in uh, 89,000 uh, pounds of debt uh, as an 18 year old. And we spent a short amount of time traveling the country on trial with different clubs, trying to get a new deal. And that didn't work out. And, and uh, Harry Gerber sat me down uh, in a restaurant in, uh, in Camden and said, we can keep trying to do this. It doesn't look promising. And if you don't service this debt that you have, it could cripple you for the rest of your life. Uh, And a friend of mine is willing to give you a job uh, in tally sales on Monday um, at 8.30. And I I really think you should take it. So that's what I did. I kind of bounced out of football at the end of the day on Thursday. And by Monday, I was sat in a windowless room uh, making cold calls and crying.
1: I mean, that like to have that much debt at 18 and not feeling like you've got the opportunity to pay that money back how how did that feel that must have been terrifying
0: i was more scared about the reputational damage than i was about the money mm-hmm. cuz i grew up in a in a group of footballers who went on to play for their country play in world cups play in the premier league and they were just starting to you know make their mark um so I was kind of ejected, not ejected, but I came out of the group as a failed footballer and it made my social life and existence. I had my existence destroyed like in that Thursday night. Up until that point, I was part of that group. We were all footballers, we were trained. And then suddenly um, I wasn't anymore. So that was harder to deal with um, than than the debt. I actually wasn't that worried about the debt. I was more more concerned about how I was going to continue to, like exist as a person. It sounds mm-hmm. it sounds really tragic, but it was more about I don't want to I don't want to socialize with them anymore. I don't want to be around them anymore. They're that's all they talk about. I can't talk about how many cold calls I've made when we're in you know a bar on a Friday night. I just didn't know what my new existence was going to be, and that that was more frightening.
2: So it sounds something like you know being a young footballer. That was you. That was your personality. That's your social group, and then suddenly that's been snatched away. You yeah. you no longer have the license to be you anymore. Right, right. And trying to
0: figure out, it sounds so dramatic, but just trying to figure out who you are. Every social conversation we had, maybe not every, but the vast majority of social conversations we had were about how we trained that day, who was good in training that day, who we were going to play at the weekend, when we were playing against each other, who was injured, who your club had do. That was... You know that was the tone of the the friendship group and if you weren't playing every day or training every day or playing at the weekend what were you going to talk about and what i was now doing making 60 cold calls a day none of these guys had any mm. had any uh, had any interest in and then there's the banter of that group right it's quite a vicious it's quite a vicious group yeah. and they weren't particularly forgiving that i'd had this mm. you know turn of fate and it wasn't that they were horrible that's that was also how we spoke to each other so it wasn't a change that was just uh, how we spoke to each other but now i am upset and i am sad because i am out of the group those jibes were hitting a little yeah. bit a little bit sharper than they would have done a year, mm. a year before so that that was that was really uh, really hard
2: how did you get through this time
0: i wasn't kidding i cried a lot like when i when i took that job in tele-sales, i always joked that i kind of you know, go into the, the toilet and I'd sit in the toilet and I, it would feel like I was in there for like, you know, two hours mm-hmm. and you'd come out and check your watch and you'd been in there for 10 minutes. Like you were trying to run the clock down mm-hmm. on the day. Um, I was really, really like emotional and I, I, I cried a lot, but I just also hit a point where it was so embarrassing to be there, to fail at football, that everybody in the office was, you know, whispering and talking about me, it was so bad that I got to a point of just saying, okay, I don't like being here, but I at least need to prove to this room of people that I'm not a moron, right? So I took the job seriously for a period of time purely to prove to colleagues who were like laughing at me that I wasn't an idiot. And that was the beginning of kind of the bounce out of the lowest point.
1: Mm. And when, I mean, at what point did you feel like you found your identity?
0: The the Primavera exit. so when we sold to Oracle and um, yeah, but when we when we sold to Oracle, it was at that moment I kind of said okay, I, and it was at that moment actually I kind of reintegrated back into that into that social group because at that point I was I had a, a really good job, I was paid really well, I was traveling the world, I was running a big part of a company, and that deal made me a multimillionaire. So I kind of walked back into that social circle. You know chest out and successful because i I'd, I'd you know i'd done something friends had england caps friends had premier league goals friends had you know great uh financial situations and i now had something to bring um to bring mm. to the table so it was yeah 2008.
2: so what does dean forbes work so hard for
0: it yeah it's funny because i'm i'm still working so hard to prove something mm. i've still got this. I don't really know why, but I've just got this incredible desire to check this €4 billion euro box now, to run a company across Europe at this scale, to be a person who has supported the professional advancement of hundreds, if not thousands of young people. I still want to prove that, um, that I can do that.
1: Okay, it's the time of the show when we are going to ask you about your notes app, because we think that this is a really great way to get into your psyche, really understand, Dean, what is in your notes and can you share anything with us? Ooh. Are you a to-do list man?
0: Oh, I'm a big to-do list okay. man. If I, if I write it down, it probably gets done. If I don't, it, it may not.
1: So do you tick them off then as you go along? Do you have the little tick boxes on your app?
0: It, it's weird. If I, if I write something, it commits it to memory. So okay. I, if I write stuff, I really go back mm-hmm. to read it. Like just the act of writing it is what makes me, um, yeah. Makes me remember. So I, so if I need to remember something, I, I write it down.
1: Okay, go on then. What, what's in there? What can you read? What can you read out?
0: Um, you know, put this platform to to better use. Are you doing that, Dean? That's like a constant question mm. uh, I ask myself. I also like often think about, and we do a lot of work uh, through our foundation around how the position I find myself in now can be put to good use for more people like me from similar backgrounds uh, to mine so I'm always you know challenging myself to find spaces find opportunities make connections that I can play back you know to people who look like me come from where I come from and have more potential uh, than I had so that's that's something um and then something else is to cure my addiction to work. <laughs> um, I find so much energy. I don't use an alarm clock to get up. I'm completely uh, engrossed in in all elements of my work. But I know that's probably not a healthy, like, long-term strategy. So another note I have is to find ways to just gradually cure this obsession.
2: That mm. How's that's that going?
0: <laughs> Terribly. <laughs> it's, going, it's going really badly. I, I'm always like you know i reckon i can put that hour to good use and then be- and that hour to good use and that hour to good use and then before you know it it's you know i'm sleeping 4 hours a night or less um,
1: is that what you sleep every night
0: 6 hours is a long is no a long night for me yeah, yeah and what
1: time do you get up
0: 4am like whenever
1: you do not get up at 4am
0: i get up at, yeah I, get, I i wake up at 5 past 4 uh, most nights yeah.
1: And then so, sorry, I mean, this is not about your life, <laughs> but that, wow. I mean, and so what do you, do you start work as soon as you get up?
0: What What happens is, and this is part of the situation we need to cure, you know, I'll, I'll go to bed at know, 11.30 and I'll be in the middle of dealing with something. I'll send, you know, send Greg an email about something we've got to talk about tomorrow morning. And I'll send that email and I'll be thinking about the conversation that Greg and I are going to have at 8am. And then I fall asleep at four. And when I wake up at five past four, my thought process is at the exact point it was when I went to sleep. It's just like my brain has stopped for a few moments. I just I jump out of sleep tank and I fin I can almost like finish the sentence that I was in the middle of when I when I went to That's sleep. Incredible. I don't know that it is incredible. I don't recommend it at <laughs> okay. all. Like I'm generally tired a lot of the time. Yeah,
1: because but- how are you going to wind down then when you do get to four billion? When when you get there, it just feels like you've. Is enough enough? Basically, is it ever enough?
0: I think that's part of the process for me for the next however many years, just to be, you know, content and satisfied with what I've been fortunate enough uh, to do so far, and the things that that has given me, and the opportunities and the relationships that that's um, given me, and to to get rid of the need to pursue the next thing. Mm. I may still pursue the next thing, but at the moment, you know, I need it. I need it to. St- to be motivated i need it to be excited i need it to be happy so all i'm trying to do is not get rid of the desire to do it but get rid of the, the need mm-hmm. uh, the need to do
1: it well that leads us very nicely into asking the big question um i mean what is next for you what what do you see as next steps and how do you see yourself getting there
0: um i'd like to buy an island that's something that kind of surfaced recently of course uh, <laughs> sure which which isn't as... I mean, it's a, a, a slightly crazy thing, but it isn't as insane as it sounds. Yeah. So a lot of people who have done well buy holiday homes mm-hmm. and you can spend a good amount of money on a holiday home. And somebody sent me uh, an island um, off the coast of Belize recently, which was like £600,000 to buy. And then you'd spend probably what you'd spend on a holiday home putting infrastructure on that island. And I'm a you know big introvert. I like my own space. So the thought of... <laughs> vanishing to an island, you know, self-contained, not having to see any other humans. That, <laughs> I, I what about like your that. family, Dean? <laughs> we'll do timeshare. No,
2: I'm, no,
0: I'm kidding. But yeah, that, that and just the project of that, like putting myself, that will be another challenge. That will be another mm-hmm. thing to figure out. That would be another thing to be obsessed with. So it, it would also serve that part of my personality yeah. as
2: well. Have you well, done that before? Um, Have you been to islands before?
0: Um, yeah, it, it's, and it sounds a weird thing to say but it it kind of became a great way for me to holiday because you find these great tiny island destinations uh, and they're very um, you know accommodating so a lot of the time when we go to places like that we'd have them turn the Wi-Fi off for a period uh, which the kids didn't love but it was a way for me to kind of detox from work I'd leave my phone at home I'd leave my laptop at home and just the just the act of boarding the plane going I really want to work but I can't it mm. meant that I just kicked into holiday mode much quicker than when I travelled with my, you know, with my phone and you're running back to the room after mm. dinner just to do 20 mm-hmm. emails and then run back to the bar. So, yeah, it became a way um, for a person, a work addict like me to get a bit of a break.
2: Yeah, sure. So you've obviously got it really under control in that you need to have basically your own country in order to switch <laughs> off from work to be able to control the I internet. internet. Yeah.
0: I, need to, okay. I need to leave all device all devices, that's... A much cheaper option, just leaving all devices at home. And, what uh, does
1: your out-of-office say? Dean Forbes is on holiday. <laughs> the,
0: other, the other trick is uh, I have IT change my passwords too. Like this is how bad I am, right? So I leave the devices and I have IT change the passwords because I had moments where I'd find an internet cafe and just say, well, let me just check what's going on. And then, you know, that's the rest of the holiday binned um, because I'm in my email. So they, I leave the devices, they change the password and I get a couple of weeks this
1: is a serious addiction, isn't it, Dean? This is what we are finding out. do you want to lie down <laughs> yeah. but how I mean, do you think that you can conquer this on your own or i mean how, yeah, how do you put your best step forward with this because it is quite serious if you can never switch off that's it's it's not a good thing
0: it it isn't a good thing like long term health wise it it probably can't be a good thing um but don't get me wrong, like I'm having a blast like I'm having so much yeah. fun um working. I cannot believe that I have this life, that I have this job, that I'm in this position. And I just want to use every minute that I'm still here and put it to put it to great mm-hmm. use. I was joking with my wife yesterday that at some point, well, we always joke and say at some point, someone's going to ring the bell and say, you know, you've had your fun now. Like, <laughs> you need to give us back our lives, the lives that we loaned to you for, for 10 years. So I just want to keep, keep enjoying it. So I don't, I'm not pressured by it. I'm not mm-hmm. burdened by it. I just know it's probably not Sustainable um mm. for the long term at this pace and intensity.
1: I mean it sounds a little bit tell me if I'm wrong, that you feel a bit guilty and is there is there a sense of why me at times, as you're saying, you think someone's gonna come and knock on your door and be like, Oh, actually sorry, we gave you the wrong the wrong life. Could yeah, you come back the, here right, a little bit?
0: Right. Uh
1: not guilty, but it's you know
0: There's a little bit of survivor's guilt, which is one of the hardest things um in my life to manage, right? So you know our our nearest and dearest family, um, our friends, the environment we all grew up in. Of course, everybody hasn't had the luck and fortune that that I've had. So sometimes, with the situations I'm in, the rooms I'm in, the amount of money I'm dealing with, you kind of look back and say, "Jesus, th- this room is throwing around tens of millions of pounds on the, you know, on a conversation mm-hmm. or turn of a page." And I I know and speak to people on a daily basis for whom tens of thousands of pounds is life-changing amounts of money. So there's always a little bit of, of that guilt. You know, you sit down for dinner and you're spending thousands of pounds on wine. And I know people who are trying to have their boiler fixed or trying to get their car repaired to take their kids to school. So there's always a little bit of, of, um, of that guilt. At the other end of the scale is the fact that I've always been somebody happier giving. So even when I am you know, making good money, and, and we're doing great deals, and we're liquidating our equity positions. I, I play a lot of that back to friends and family and, and to the causes that I care about. So it's uh, at any given moment, I'm somewhere on that spectrum of, oh my god, why are we spending £3,000 on wine? This is absolutely ridiculous To If I'm going to take this opportunity or run this company, I'm going to need £15 million more at the, at the other end. I'm always... Mm. At, at some point of conflict on that uh, on that scale
2: what, what do you see as the legacy that you want to leave so far
0: I mean legacy is such a big word for such big people I don't think about I thinking about my legacy uh, in that sense um, the the thing that I've discovered uh, and that I do think is is helpful is I'm a person who is comfortable and hopefully credible in the boardroom. I've done some big deals, have been involved in some great conversations, been involved in some political conversations right, at, at a good attitude. So I'd like to think I'm credible in those rooms. But when I go back to my estate, I'm still welcomed, I'm still credible, I still uh, am, am relatable. Those people don't look at me as somebody who is gone or you know is out of reach or they shouldn't listen to because I'm living in a different world. And the people in the boardroom don't look at me as somebody who's still fresh off of uh, an estate. So the thing I I would like, if people do, for whatever strange reason, think of me, I'd like for them to think of me as that, that somebody who didn't lose themselves coming from where I've come from and somebody who was legitimately in those rooms um, because they earned it and they deserve to be. And as a consequence of that, people like me from where I'm from think that this path is a possible yeah. one that they can and should pursue that that's the only reason I spend time you know talking about what we've done talking about what my experience has been doing podcasts mm. so that somebody like me looks and says I never imagined that somebody like me could do what he's done mm. and now that that barrier is broken that's 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 what I hope people think
1: what about your success has surprised you the most? Um, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. Are there low moments with success? I think people associate success with happiness, don't they? But what what has that success brought to you in your life?
0: Yeah, it's a re- really good point. The two, and the two extremes, I would say, um, the kind of the rooms that I now find myself in, Like I, I still am surprised and pinch myself a little bit. Uh, and these are people who somehow their gravitational pull has pulled me into their world and their lives, and I, I find that still um, fascinating and pretty cool. Because then, from that, relationships are built. So that's mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. Um, the other thing that surprised me is the loneliness. Like it's it's quite a lonely existence sometimes. Not not for the sake of pity, but mm. you know, you you grow up with people. You're, you're losing sleep because there's a billion euro deal on the table, like you're not sleeping for six weeks leading up to that and you are wired and you're stressed and you really wanna get that done. And then you ring your friend and you say, oh, you know, I'm really struggling at the moment because I just really wanna get this billion euro deal done. And they, they have no context to relate to that. They've, they're kind of annoyed that you're bothering them with this nonsense because how could that possibly be a problem, but for you it's, you have the weight of the world on your shoulders in this situation. But for them, it's it's not even it's not even an issue. So sometimes the loneliness that comes with it surprised me, mm. uh, surprised me a lot.
1: Who do you feel like you can reach out to then and, and talk to that does understand these problems? Because as you say, like being up for six weeks because you're about to sign a a billion euro deal isn't a problem <laughs> of the every person. So who who you know do you have people that you can confide in?
0: That that's why it's lonely because there are there are a really good set of business friends who will understand those deals uh, in that form. But they don't understand that once that deal gets done, there's a group of family members kind of waiting in the wings, right, that, mm-hmm. that we have to deal with and vice versa on the other side. And that that's what makes it a little, bit, yeah. a little bit
2: lonely. It's something that we talk to lots of our clients about, you know, every kind of stage of wealth you go through, you suddenly discover whole new complexities where... You know, a few years ago you thought, well, when I get to that level, everything will be simple because right. I, ba- I can basically just write checks to solve problems. <laughs> right. How do you balance that bit then where you know you can probably solve lots of the problems that people come to you with um, just by sending money? Hmm. How do you balance that with the need probably to actually help some of them, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and sort, sort out things themselves?
0: It, it's been a it's been a multi-year process of triage to be honest and now the beautiful thing about this very small group that is so important to me is if they ask it's a genuine genuine need right and they would have exhausted every possibility to handle it without my involvement so when they ask it's a you know highly qualified need that's helpful um number two is they don't ask right they tend they tend not to and they tend to be respectful of the fact that A, you've earned your way to your position and that they kind of see the demands that others place on you. So they don't want to do that. And those two things are really important. So it means when the phone does ring, you you feel differently towards, towards helping. And those, it sounds bad, but those outside of the circle, I can't attest that their uh, mot- motivations are as well uh, uh, qualified. So that helps me help and support that group and the other thing is just to do things more structurally so I have an equity position in Fortero which is mine and my wife's I have another equity position in Fortero that is for friends and family to to invest in and they have invested into Fortero with their own money and my wife and I have matched their investments so that as Fortero grows you know they have a position in Fortero that will grow so doing more things structurally for people Mm -hmm. so it's not just you know endless phone calls every time somebody has a a you know, personal situation that needs to be cured uh, with with money.
1: Mm. Yeah. And after you, like, just going back to talking about how you're saying that sometimes you can feel a bit low after success, like how, how do you deal with that? I mean, most of the time you said you're really fortunate, this is really great, but there are times where perhaps a family member is coming to you or something happens at work. How, how do you deal with those lows?
0: Firstly, because it's happened... i i I understand it now when it happened earlier in my career it was harder to deal with i was kind of looking at myself saying how how dare you feel so low you've just done this amazing thing you've now got this amazing amount of money like how dare you be sat here feeling sorry for yourself or or feeling low and that was harder to deal with and it doesn't happen any less now it happens at exactly the same frequency at almost exactly the same moment as it happened earlier i just know it's going to happen now right Mm -hmm. so you know, you're going through a situation going, Okay, this is going to be really good for a couple of weeks, and then it's going to be bad. So just get ready for the, um, for the low. Uh, I'm a big thinker, and I choose, you know, silent. I just kind of think my way uh, through those problems. I've got good friends and family who also have been with me for long enough now that I think they sometimes talk among themselves, saying, you know, you, you know what's coming in a couple of <laughs> weeks. in and, the corner. <laughs> right? you, you know what's coming in a few weeks. So, so just knowing. Knowing that that happens, knowing that that's the way I'm built is part of the cure. Yeah. Uh, it's part of the cure for it.
1: Because I think people just like automatically think that, I mean, you guys have got, you know this world much more than me or anyone else listening in my position. Like You, you do just associate happiness and success and you think, well, you've got this money now, you should be fine. Mm. And it's like, as I'm learning, it's really not like that.
0: Oh, no, no, like... My daughter sent me a text. I stayed away from home last night because I, I was speaking at a charity dinner. Great dinner, you know. wonderful cause, great use of time. And my daughter sent me a text last night just explaining her school day and saying that she missed me. So then I had 20 minutes of hating the fact that I'd spent the night at this charity dinner when I could have been at home. I could have had dinner with her. She could have explained her day to me you know, directly, but I'd chosen to miss that in order to support a charity. So you have these moments of feeling really uh, guilty and, you know, impassioned that you haven't been there for your kid or you Mm. missed a sports day or your wife calls you to explain a situation at home and you're not there. So you have, those are lows. Money doesn't really cure those those low moments.
2: And we're talking a lot about success as part of this series and beyond success, what happens once you've achieved it and what's next. And how do you think about, success for your children and how your success maps onto what their expectations of themselves might be how does that work for you um, firstly
0: my my wife and i are, are constantly managing our our own jealousy of our own children <laughs> like we' we're, we're really jealous and sometimes it borders on disliking our own children like we you know we we do crazy stuff sometimes and we have to um govern each other's behavior you find us like snatching a can of coke out of one of our kids' hands. When we were young, we didn't, we weren't allowed to drink coke just on a Tuesday afternoon. You know, fizzy drinks were for the weekend and cakes and sweets for the. Get them, we're just, you know, behaving appallingly and snatching, and they don't know any difference. It's not, um, it's not. Therefore, I think our biggest fear is that the drive, determination, and motivation that we have and that I have was born out of hardship and suffering and, and trauma. That's where this drive has come from so now the challenge for us is to parent in a way that creates that drive in these young people without the tool of you need to work because if you don't work you can't eat you can't explain that to my children because they just have no you know they're swimming around in their pool in their house with their friends so you can't tell them to get out of that pool and explain to them you know you should really work hard because if you don't you won't have nice things in life they're kind of like I don't know this world that you yeah. speak of. Um, so it creates a challenge for us to have them understand the value of hard work, have them understand the value uh, of money, have them be motivated without that uh, as, a, as a tool. It's, yeah. very, it's very difficult. And where
2: are you learning those tools from? I mean, we, we do a bit of it at, at work, and we've got ideas around how you introduce a six-year-old to the value of money. Mm-hmm. You know, our tip is... Uh, split their pocket money into thirds. A third they can spend because they see that money buys what you want, but once it's gone, it's gone. A third you have to save so they can see the number go up and they can Mm -hmm. think about something bigger that they want in the future. But then when they get to that decision point, it means that number going back down to zero, but then they get the thing and maybe they want to think about that. Then a third they have to give to charity. It doesn't matter what they choose. It could be the dolphins or whatever. But it really starts them recognising that the third I would have used to buy some sweets for a magazine or something – I've been explained what that means for the charity. It's really important for me. Right. And as you scale all those numbers up as they get older and older and maybe they start becoming part of the family foundation, they much better understand that that £2,000 thing they might want, <laughs> right. what that does in the charity, right. and that, that really helps. But where are you uh, pro- learning some of these lessons? Probably
0: not a too dissimilar um, philosophy. So our children get, you know, a budget for Christmas and birthday. Um, anything that they want outside of those two occasions, they have to put half of the money up for it. So they get pocket money, which they can save, or they can do additional work and chores around the house for money. Um, and they can have pretty much whatever they want as long as they can come up with um, half of the half of the money. So that has created a bit of, if I want something, I need to do something, and then I need to preserve the money that I got from doing that thing because I want to buy uh, something else. So that we've been doing that with them. Since they were very young, I remember when they were like four and five, and when they had tiny amounts of pocket money, we would take to them. We want to, we want to go on holiday uh, in the summer. Where would you, where would you like to go? And they tell we want to go to Dubai because they love uh, Dubai. And we tell, okay, well that means no biscuits and crisps, you know, for two months because we're all going to have to tighten our belts to get to Dubai. And they were really, really kind of engaged <laughs> nice. in this, and they had this. It was so cute that they thought, you know, the six pounds that we avoided spending was the difference between going to Dubai. But we've always had those uh, kinds of philosophies in the house, which I think has helped. But my son now has gone into full time football, so he's earning his own money, and it's been really interesting because if he spends any money to buy anything in the house, he considers it alone in his head. So if he buys. If he buys milk because he wants cereal. He wants you to
2: put up 50% of it, <laughs> presumably. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he,
0: he comes home, he says, I, I bought milk for two pounds. You know, who's going to give <laughs> really uh, two, quid, <laughs> two quid back? It's really...
1: Oh, my God. That must be really, really hard, though, if you... All you've ever wanted, I'm sh- I mean, as a parent, is the best for your children, yeah. but you give them the best, and in your case, like, you can give them a lot, mm. but then you're like, but... I actually, what school do I send them to? Because I didn't go to a school like that. I wasn't educated right. like that. Then your friends, because you are educated in a certain way, will be different to the friends that you had. Yeah. I can imagine just the layers of complexity it's around complex. this must be really, really hard.
0: It's very complex. But but different things help. As I mentioned, we we manage their wants and desires, their mm. economic wants and desires in the way that I just described. I think that's helpful. They still have family who aren't, who don't yep. have the lifestyle they have. So they, you know, they stay at those family members' houses. They spend time with those family members. So they understand that their life isn't normal. And then they have friends who have a similar life to them, and those friends sometimes help because those friends' parents are buying them ponies or taking them to amazing places. So our kids ask us for those things, and we're able to say, "No, are you, are you kidding? Like what are you?" What are you are you talking about a horse? No, you're not having a horse. <laughs> and they said, well, you can afford it. I say, yeah, we can afford it. I can afford a horse. If I want a horse, I'll buy a horse for me. You're not getting it. So it lets you, you know, educate them that just because the money is there doesn't mean you're, yeah. you're going to get it. So those things are helpful.
2: What do you wish for your kids when they grow up? Do you think they see, do you think they would see your success as an unachievable hurdle? Is there something else you want to see for them?
0: I don't want them to be pressured by it. And there there are moments where I can see, you know, the pressure of that creeping in. Um, my son did his GCSEs and all of his friends were asking, you know, why are you doing that? You know, you, you're not going to need to do GCSEs, right? Your dad's going to mm. you know, take care of you. So I see I see the pressure creeping into their lives. I don't want that for them. As long as they're honest and hardworking, I really couldn't care less, uh, you know, what, what they do. Um, and as long as they understand... I will help start them in life, but I will not bankroll their life at all. Absolutely not.
1: Mm.
0: They go to a normal school. It's a conscious choice.
1: Okay, we're nearing the end of the show. And we're gonna ask you to share a goal, and um, Greg is gonna talk to you about your goal. Hopefully he can help you with this goal. It
2: depends how wacky it is, but we'll try. Yeah.
1: Um, Do you have anything that you wanna share with us?
0: Uh, Well, I really have two main goals. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, scaling for Tarot, four billion and beyond is is important to me because that will just put a check in the box around scale and i'll be able to sleep at night knowing that you know that i did it and uh that's super 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 important to me uh, and i do want to get moving on this island right? it's just a, a semi-insane passion project that will give me somewhere to chill out and relax and really call my own so i'd really love to get moving on that too.
2: <laughs> well, drawing on my boundless <laughs> knowledge of Caribbean real estate, um, look, I actually think they're linked because everything that we've learned from thousands of people that have sold businesses or led businesses through big exits, it's, you've got to find the purpose in life afterwards because so many people, they feel an, an amplified version of your marathon runners syndrome where afterwards it's just, it it's never... So many people think selling business, getting money is about winning life, everything's solved. You already know that that's not true when it comes to money, but they just feel so deflated and so empty. And if you're the kind of person that's running a million miles an hour, whose brain goes into like sleep for four hours and turns back on at the same place it started, then it's so hard to then stop and try and build a new life. But Mm. building a new island is probably quite a good way to start building a new life. And, um, I don't know if you ever played a computer game called SimCity, but I'm sure there's something around, you know, building your sewage system first before you start building the beaches and everything. But I think that, I think you know that that's the perfect route to throw yourself into a massive mega project that that also brings contentment. That feels to me like the right path.
1: Thank you so much. It's been so interesting and really great to meet yeah. you. Thank you so much for your time. We know that you're a very busy man.
2: Thank you for having
0: me. It's been great. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening uh, and watching. Don't forget to press the follow and subscribe button so you don't miss out on our next Beyond Success guest. Bye.